Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Newman. I'm Professor of Space Law and Policy at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I'm also International Space Law Advisor for Coalstar Technologies. I'm Ken Evans, Founder and CEO of Orbit Guardians. I'm Aaron Burnett, Co-Founder of Space Ventures. I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. If you sat down with someone and within like 10 minutes they said something or did something oh, and you would be like, oh just God. nope. <laughs> and there have been plenty of red flags, yeah. one of which I probably can't even talk about here mm -hmm. because someone demonstrated their or talked about their unethical behavior very early in the conversation. Hmm. And, you know, that was quite a surprise because there was someone with a track record and then someone can get all the way through an interview process and again, they can come out with a comment that might seem not particularly interesting at the time, but you can dig into it and it can help with their, their, their characteristics. So yes, there are red flags that come out and they're generally behavioral red flags because the technical uh, sort of skill-based red flags are easy to uh, weed out. Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm your host, Jason Kanigan, the founder of This Thing, a process improvement and data science company called Cold Star Technologies. I'm here with Nigel Gibson, who was referred to me by Chris Stott of Mansat, which I appreciate. And uh, Nigel is the CEO of Gibson Professional Search. And I have had one other uh, professional recruiter type on this show, and that was for software as a service way back in season one. And I honestly, Nigel, have not run into uh, many other, or maybe I can't even think of any other uh, space industry recruiters. So I, I wanted you on as soon as we had, we had a chat and uh, figured, hey, this would be a cool thing to do because uh, we, we're interested in the space industry, obviously, and the job market. And uh, so I want to know a little bit more about how you do what you do. And I think that will educate our uh, listeners and viewers really well. Uh, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Yeah. You had a uh, sales and marketing executive career in broadcasting, satellite communications, and telecom prior to starting your own uh, satellite communication, telecom, and media executive search firm uh, more than five years ago now. So you've been in the game quite a while. Uh, the first thing I want to begin with is uh, back in the day when you're running sales and marketing teams, revenue growth is a key performance indicator, KPI, that's uh, often <laughs> held up, you know, as a big measure for those kinds of teams. And so I would like to know what kind of KPIs or measures do you carry across to your activities now? Okay, well, revenue growth for my company, like any company, is absolutely key. But we also look at the performance of our candidates. So for example, if we place a sales candidate with a satellite company, we need to make sure that that candidate delivers the revenue that we expect them to deliver for their client company. If it's someone who's got a high degree of technical competency in an engineering role, you know, are they performing as, as, as they should be expected? So it's, it's pretty straightforward, Jason. You know, uh, you can just match across all the sort of disciplines that you might expect. And we look at how, how those individuals perform effectively. Um, but for what we do, what's really important for us is to make sure that we uh, make the recruitment process as effective as possible and put the most talented candidates uh, within, our, within our clients. And, and so far, so good. And just to come back to what you were talking about, about my career, yeah, I've been in the industry over 20 years, most of it on the satellite operator side. And why our clients come and talk to us and why we built up a good track record is that we do understand the business. Mm -hmm. and know what good looks like and part of the reason that I started my company is that when I was trying to hire people it frustrated me a little that I couldn't find an expert who really understood the industry and certainly understood the technology there were some people that told me that 
actually sometimes I didn't delete them because I think they were just trying to win the recruitment business. But that's the, what sets us apart, and it's really understanding the KPIs and the metrics within organisations uh, because I've done it myself that allows us to place good candidates. Okay, Nigel, I'm going to give you a little pushback on that because I think there's a bit of you know you, you, you know. Uh, what I will call uh, under the, the sales training thing, the curse of knowledge, where you know what you know, and therefore it's obvious to everyone else, isn't it? And I don't think it is. I think you, you have said you know what good looks like, and I, I believe you. Uh, but I would like to hear more about uh, what, what that does look like. Um, I, let's talk about team dynamics, for example. You've run sales and marketing teams. Uh, it's made up of individuals and everyone's got their own goals and motivations and things like that. What have you learned or discovered is important about team dynamics, which have in, in, impacted how you screen candidates and uh, recommend hiring decisions? Okay, so I would say the team dynamics or behavioral fit is probably one of the biggest elements that you would hire a recruiter like me to determine but it's quite straightforward to understand if someone's got the right technical characteristics. You know, if you're hiring an engineer in a, in a specialist discipline, you know, you can check out whether they've got the right technical competencies to deliver in that discipline. But what it's really hard to understand is what's their, their behavior like? What are their motivations like? Um, how are they going to fit in in a particular environment? And so if you take a you know, a typical geostationary satellite operator. I mean, these are large engineering businesses where people have to work collaboratively to become successful. And the culture in that business might be determined by their ownership. So for example, if they're a private equity owned business, they might be very focused on quarterly results, uh, you know, delivering revenue quickly, very fast reaction to customers, delivering on very short term projects. If they're a, a different type of business with maybe a public ownership or maybe government ownership, they would have different uh, type of objectives. So it's really understanding what type of personality is gonna fit in those sorts of business. And that's what we do. And that's what I did in my last company. So for example, when I worked for Telesat and SES, when I hired people, and those were different cultures and different organizations. So if you hired someone for SES, that's a very European orientated company. Plenty of jokes there for our US listeners about what a European orientated company is like. But it's true, there's, there's quite a lot of cultural differences and certain individuals won't fit into that environment. However, there's certain individuals that will definitely fit into that environment and thrive. And so we take a, put a lot of store in analyzing and interviewing our candidates so that they can be most effective in the right cultural environment for our client companies, be they large or small. And another example is startups as well. We place quite a few people in startup companies. And of course, they've got different corporate objectives and they can have quite radically different cultures. So someone from an engineering discipline with a large operator that's government owned is going to find themselves in a very different uh, ball game to someone who's in a 10 person startup that's worried about the funding that might run out in three weeks time. So that's a very long answer to your question. Right. No, that's good. That's the level of detail I wanted us to get into. Um, and I've been that guy who worked for a startup and, uh, the, you know, the founder needed to have a pool of money uh, ready to support that, that person for a while. And when it runs out, it's like tough luck, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and you need to know for that candidate what they're getting into. Are there any 
assessment tools that you use or specific questions that you've liked in order to elicit that kind of uh, response about what kind of culture they're used to and, and uh, how they react to other people? Yeah, so there's a range of behavioral competency questions that you can ask um, that don't get into kind of analyzing technical. Mm -hmm. um, and they could be about conflict, they could be about achievement, they can be about what those people have done deliberately they could have you can put people in certain situations and say how would you react in this particular situation so there is a range of questions that you can ask individuals and you can do that uh, online through psychometric testing i'm a bit old-fashioned there's there's no right school of thought on this by the way some countries have been down a very large psychometric route and come back to the old-fashioned interview I, I still believe that actually time spent on old-fashioned interviews taking up references very diligently and really getting underneath of that skin on a person-to-person -person basis is still the most effective way of understanding if that individual is the right person for the role and preparation for that uh, is absolutely key as well. Okay what is Nigel a, a, a red flag for you if you sat down with someone and within like 10 minutes they said something or did something oh. and you would be like oh just God. nope. <laughs> Well, we haven't prepared for that question, Chris. Um, and there have been plenty of red flags, um, one of which I probably can't even talk about here uh, because um, it, it, someone demonstrated their or talked about their unethical behavior very early in the conversation. And, you know, that was quite a surprise because there was someone with a track record. And then someone can get all the way through an interview process. And again, they can come out with a comment that might seem you know, uh, not particularly interesting at the time, but you can dig into it and it can help with their, their, their characteristics. So yes, that there are red flags that come out and they're generally behavioral red flags because the technical uh, sort of skill-based red flags are easy to uh, weed out in the first instance. Mm -hmm. that, maybe that's the story for another day. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I, I just want people to get the flavor of it. Uh, yeah. You know, if, if we were to ask um, our clients at Gold Star why they hired us, I think they would say, in their words, uh, to find out the truth about what's going on right, out of a, either a pool of data or within their organization, right? As opposed to what they believe is going on, because we're all running sort of mental movies about what we think is going on, and yet the truth can be quite divergent. And have folks like that uh, unethical person that you mentioned floating around in that system, uh, stealing or doing whatever, you know, <laughs> nefarious thing, uh, and, and fact, then they discover it. Yeah, there's been quite a lot of research about why people leave companies, and typically mm. they leave it because of not what they are and what they know, it's because of who they are. That's why. Mm. they Mm-hmm. And yeah, and either they're not a fit with that particular culture because they're better than that, or uh, <laughs> or maybe not so much. But uh, so why why would you say uh, that your clients hire you? What problem are you solving for them? In their words, well, it comes back to one of the things that we talked about earlier. We've got a high degree of industry expertise. So to start off with, uh, let's say they're hiring a regulatory manager to deal with Spectrum in Asia Pacific. We know what that is. They don't have to spend quite a lot of time describing to us the regulatory framework and what spectrum means in, in the space and satellite world. We get it quickly, so that's one of the reasons. Um, secondly, you know, we, without wishing to blow our own trumpet, but we will, we're pretty well known in the, in the space and satcoms industry. So when we speak to prospective candidates, they are 
generally likely to take our call and listen to our approach. And the fact that we've got a good reputation means that they will give us the time where maybe if other recruitment companies might call them up who they didn't know, who didn't know, or who weren't experts in the industry, they might not, not speak to them about that. So I would say those are some of the two main reasons why people hire us. And, and yeah. finally, you know, most of our customers come back to us. We've done a good job. We've got a high degree of customers. But of course, you never know that until you've started working with us. So. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, uh, to be fair, Gibson Professional Search is the only space sector uh, recruitment firm that I've been referred to. So that's, that's something right there. And I, I have met a lot of people, as uh, you know, our, our listeners and viewers might imagine. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your process, uh, particularly interested in what are the most important factors in screening uh, for you and why you've settled on those over time? Obviously, culture fit and some behavioral stuff is important. Okay. So we have a, there's nothing revolutionary or um, no pun intended, rocket scientific about a search process. You know, we uh, typically for a, a typical role, we might have a long list of 50 or 60 candidates. We might approach all of those candidates and narrow it down to a short, eventually after a process of interview evaluation to a short list of five candidates for our clients. And we will look at, we will audit those candidates from a, a, a technical perspective, uh, and a behavioral respect, um, behavioral perspective. And once we've been through all those processes, we'll then put those candidates in front of our clients and we'll describe as well, um, talk a lot about the soft skills as well of those different individuals too with our clients. They will then, this is the typical process, they will then have an initial consultation. And in this current environment, it's always by video in the first instance. Um, typically, the next stage would be in person, and typically the next stage with the client is also when it, the second interview is generally the big interview where they might be asked to present some material, and there will be de, you know, predetermined talking points that they, they know they've got to cover off. And so, if the person makes it through that first and second stage, the final stage is typically meeting again in person, and often with um, the CEO or someone at C level within the client organisation. That's a fairly standard, well trodden. Um, process that both we and our clients go through and we do our best to de-risk um, the process for the clients so that when they get to the, the shortlist all those candidates are qualified and you know they, they they would be able to do the job all right that gives us some idea of the the stages of your process do you do uh, any like mock interviewing with the the candidates that you send up or is it just well, get out there and perform, you know, it's, it's your, your no, job. We, I don't do much. I mean, to be honest with you, if a candidate can't interview effectively, then uh, there's several different analogies for this, like can't, but I won't go into them. Um, we do give tips to candidates on how they should interview more effectively. At the end of the day, we can't do the job for them. Mm -hmm. We certainly brief them on what their client's looking for. Okay. But at the end of the day, <laughs> we are dealing with people. And sometimes they just you know, get it wrong, don't deliver on the day, you speak to them and they're a rock star, they speak to the client and they come out as they never would be a rock star in their lives. That's fairly rare, but it does happen. And sometimes it can be the other way around. So, um, yeah, I think that's all I can say about that right now. Okay. So your clients are pretty much handling or handing you the responsibility to come up with this uh, right pool of candidates together. Yeah, so they brief us typically how the process has worked. We engage at the C level, we understand what their requirements are. And most companies 
are looking at some degree out, they might be saying, you know, 2021, Nigel, if we continue on the growth path that we're on right now, we might need a candidate in this particular frame of mind. So we'll already start thinking about who might be available in the market. Maybe towards the, maybe in September, they might come to us and say, okay, we need to firm up this search. We want you to go out. We've thought about the briefing. We want this particular individual. They need this kind of skills. They need those kind of skills. And we'll go out and we'll kind of forensically home the market to identify every possibly qualified candidate. And it also depends on geography as well. And then, you know, we'll narrow it down. So it's a fairly um, rigorous but straightforward process. Hmm. So that it sounds like there's a longer sales cycle uh, than, I, than I thought. Um, in my experience, <laughs> founders tend to wait until the last minute I've seen before posting a want ad or interviewing and that. They tend to stick these in the bottom of the pile and wait till some Friday afternoon when they feel like it. Uh, doesn't sound like that's totally the case for you. What have you experienced? It, 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 that does happen. The experience that you just described does happen more often than not, I'm afraid. Um, uh, but some companies, you know, do, do tend to look ahead. We, I find as though when we keep in regular contact with our clients, you know, on a regular basis, then, then we avoid the situation that you've just described. It does happen. And it's one of the things that I think companies can do better. You know, if they spent more time thinking about, and, it, and, and certainly in our industry, in the space and satcoms industry, pretty much for most companies, people is the biggest investment, right? Their biggest cost is people. So if they did spend some more time thinking about their future talent needs and planning for that, um, A, they would probably find that it's more cost effective for them and B, they would get better people on board. So you're right, maybe speak, you know, suddenly deciding late Friday afternoon, oh, I need a you know, director of baseband engineering in two weeks time. It's not really the best way of going about it. Um, so, so, so yeah, and I think as a rule of thumb, generally in larger companies are more planned it's smaller companies that have to be more agile and flexible uh, tend to be a bit more short-term. Okay. And, and uh, how does the timeline come out? We've talked a little bit about the process, of, uh, you know, in the various stages in that of you gathering yes. a larger pool, screening them and then sending a few up and then having a couple of meetings before somebody gets an offer letter. Uh, yeah. About how long does that usually take and does it stall anywhere typically? Um, it depends on the, it, it depends on the geography and the type of role. And again, this comes down to the people. So for example, um, for one extreme, let's say you take a salesperson in the US, um, salespeople in the US, if you approach them, they'll reply straight away. Fantastic. You know, if, if they haven't got back to you within 48 hours, you know they're not interested. In Germany, for example, or in Asia, they might take a week or two to get back to you. Um, so it depends. And then in terms of the profile itself, if it's an engineering person or an operations person, again, typically they take long to revert. And, you know, generally speaking, um, in more developed Western economies, it's, you know, the response times are quicker in developing economies. It's slower. But as a general rule of thumb, it takes between one and six months to place a candidate. Okay, and so folks should not show up going, oh, I need this person yesterday. That's just not single, realistic. You're, you're right. It's not. Yeah. But the single thing that actually does delay the process more often than not is the client themselves. So let's take your example of someone saying on a Friday, I need someone to start in two weeks time to help me with this. They get the shortlist. Of, the client gets the shortlist of candidates. 
you know, these could be people that could absolutely work wonders for this person's business. You know, they could drive technical change, they could bring some working practice that would really deliver value, but they don't interview them in time and then they choose the candidates. And so it's it's time taken by the client to get to the interview because they're so busy doing a billion other things that can actually be bad news for them in the long run. Right. So, yeah. So carve out clients, <laughs> carve out that interviewing time and make sure that you're ready to invest it in finding that right person. Exactly. And we, we count as part of our job as sometimes as politely and diplomatically to coerce our clients to interview their candidates um, in a timely way because it's in their interest. And mm -hmm. our education process generally works. Yeah. Do you have an estimate of how many times or how frequently the preferred candidate disappears, gets another job offer before they get a chance to get snapped up by uh, this client, maybe? We try and cover off all those eventualities mm -hmm. um, before it happens. So, for example, you know, if somebody's interviewing with other companies, we try and understand about that. And if that's the case, then we'll try and fast track the process, you know, with this particular candidate. Um, Sometimes things just happen that you can't account for, Jason. I mean, I had, you know, one candidate suddenly became pregnant right to the end of the interview process. So she decided to change her mind and Mother Nature had intervened and there was nothing we could do. Right. So those sorts of things happen. People are people, you know, family, family situations are things that can develop sometimes that um, can you know, disturb all the best laid plans. Hmm. How often do you find that you are reaching out to candidates who are at a current job now, as opposed to somebody who's on the job market looking for work? Now that is a very good and salient question. And the answer is most of the people that we approach are in a current job. And of those people, 80% of them aren't looking. And the reason why is that, and, and some of your viewers will, will get this, most people who are in their job, they're so busy, they're so focused on what they're doing, that they haven't even got time to think about something else. They're just wrapped up in the day-to-day. -day. And then we come along, we tap them on the shoulder and we say, hey, listen, we know you're happy in what you're doing, but here's an opportunity where you could really accelerate your career into an area that you might not have considered before. And when they think about it, they think, wow, that's right. I could go to the next step. I wasn't even thinking about that. And so, uh, part of our job is to kind of have a almost a career coaching discussion with those candidates and talk to them about what the options could be for them if they were to consider that opportunity. And we take a long-term view. We don't want to try and push someone into a role um, because we know it will come back to bite us. So, but yeah, most people aren't looking. Those are the people that we play. Okay. Yeah. And so there's a series of sales that you need to make along the way. Interesting. Nigel, if there was one sort of pre-screening, uh, if, if you could put an idea into potential clients' heads uh, and they showed up with, you know, to you knowing this thing already, what would that be? I think, I, I would say two things, actually. Probably the first one, the most important one. It was, I'd say, um, for, for companies, for clients, for C-level individuals, really think and try and articulate about what, what talent they actually need. Because I think a lot of companies will say, oh, you know, I may be thinking about a new engineering director for this particular technology we're thinking of bringing online. Yeah, you know, and they've got vague thoughts in their heads about it. And if they took the time, and this isn't criticism, it's just human nature, but if you really took the time to think and articulate 
what it is that what kind of skill set is actually going to add value to your organization then that would help them and, and, and help us and the second um ask i would have on that pre-screening side with clients is that in some companies as you could probably see they they might have a salary cap they say you know what we are going to take candidates that are paid up to xyz uh per year but if you restrict yourself to that you might have someone who wants five or ten k more they might be an absolute rock star you can chase the world for you so my i i would say to my clients hey listen just let the market tell you what's out there within reason and you might find that it paid dividend for you to take that approach Excellent, excellent. Well, my guest today has been Nigel Gibson, founder and CEO of Gibson Professional Search. Where can people go if they are in the broadcasting, satellite communications, uh, telecom, media uh, industries and want some help? They can contact me directly, nigel.gibson at gibsonps.com. Um, I won't read out my phone number right now, but you can look me up on LinkedIn, Nigel Gibson. We're a, we're, I'm a fairly rare breed, um, but you'll find me. So uh, I'd be delighted to hear from anybody. And if it's just, like I said earlier, in the answer to one of your questions, just some career advice on what options are available to you, happy to have the chat. All right. Thanks for being here. Okay. Thanks, Jason. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page coldstartech.com slash msb that's short for make space boring which is what we're all about and uh, drop in your email address there and i will be able to do that for you make space boring is another little show that i run it's a shorter format quick interviews and uh, news of the day and sometimes an update of who i'm meeting and what i'm learning in the space field it's on the same cold star tech channel speaking of which on the youtube channel i can do something i cannot do on the audio only version which is add playlists and so there may be topic area playlists on the youtube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks.